Preeminent. Preeminent. The call fast begins. All things cry preeminent as creation's song rings. Planets and stars and galaxies cry that their maker, the sun, be lifted up high. As light dispels darkness and the heavens are set, the start line won't let those that follow forget. The one that is crafted by word of his power. He is the source and the goal of this hour. And not this one only, but every hour too. It's he that gives meaning and purpose to you. Every breath that you breathe, every step that you take, every beat of your heart, each thought that you make. It is he that has given each good gift to us all. So how can we not at his feet come now fall? Preeminent, preeminent, let our hearts freely sing that first and forever should the Son be our King. Preeminent, preeminent, God's story continues. Every ransomed and rescued pointing now to this news. He's holding together every chapter and page. It's he who's supreme throughout every age. Never outshadowed by man's would-be kings, he remains incomparable to all other things. Who could be greater than the one who's before? Who's more beautiful than one angel's adore? He sits above every dominion and throne. The cattle on a thousand hills does he own. All things that have been or ever will be were made solely for him. And so can't you see? It's he that has given every good gift to us all. So how can we not at his feet come now fall? Preeminent, preeminent, let our hearts Freely sing that fast and forever should the Son be our King. Preeminent, preeminent, the crescendo is Christ. The Son made incarnate his life, sacrificed, creator, now nailed to a tree he had made. All for our sake does he make this cruel trade. For the alienated and hostile in mind, the supreme one made human, this scandal we find that he'd trade his birthright to ones such as me. The fullness of God now made flesh just for thee. And through his own life and the cross that he bore, we see the true splendor of the veil that was tore, the chance to be known and to know joy's true song. No longer in hiding, it's to him that we belong. It is he that has given each good gift to us all, so how can we not it is feet come now fall. Preeminent, preeminent, let our hearts freely sing that first and forever should the Son be our King. Preeminent, preeminent, shall the song ever be, we've been made blameless, whole, and holy. The glory is Christ's and all is for Him alone. This is what all of the scriptures have shown. Throughout all of history and the figures it names, there is no other teacher who could make such bold claims. He is the way, the truth, the life. He's the one who puts an end to all strife. And when heaven we reach and stand in awe of his grace, all of the treasure will fade as we speak face to face. We will know then in full what was once just in part that he is our glory, true desire of our heart. It is he that has given each good gift to us all. So how can we not at his feet come now fall? Preeminent, preeminent, let our hearts freely sing that first and forever should the Son be our King.
Well, uh, some of you guys know that I'm a huge fan of movies. I love movies, could watch movies all day. Uh, but some movies, do you think, probably didn't need the sequels that they got, right? There's some movies out there that were just, they were so good. Why did they have to come back and touch them? And I'll give you a few examples this morning. One, the movie Taken, right? Here's the poster for Taken. We'll wait for a second. Taken was a great movie. Who else has seen Taken? Yeah, great movie. It was original. It was edgy. It was intense. No one can forget Liam Neeson's really cool speech. You know, I have a very particular set of skills. But then here's what they did is they made a cash grab. And they decided, let's make more Takens. We got three Takens. All this tells me is that Liam Neeson is a terrible father. His daughter has been kidnapped three times. He, this guy can't figure this out. And they got worse with each time. So I was a little bit let down. Cool, but cash grab. Here's another one is Independence Day. When I was a kid, this was like the greatest movie of all time. You remember, this is like dating myself a little bit, like the 90s when they had the whole destroying the White House scene and it was like the greatest special effect any of us had ever seen. And what they did is they decided, you know what, that was great, we should, we should top that. So they came out with Independence Day Resurgence a few years ago, where instead of just having city-sized spaceships, they had planet-sized spaceships and everything was more ridiculous. The, the, uh, the alien queen tended like Godzilla or something. It was just shameless. There's, I'm not just a discriminator of movie sequels, though. I discriminate against book sequels, too. Uh, one of my favorite books, in fact, uh, th- this is the book that made me love reading uh, fiction. To, uh, it was To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. Amazing story. I remember being forced to read this in high school and was not looking forward to it. And then by the end of it, I loved every minute of it. Atticus Finch, all of it, Boo Radley. But then... Posthumously, I think it was, they decided to release this uh, sequel that Harpley had been involved with called Go Set a Watchman, where they completely destroyed the character of Atticus Finch. He moved from being this noble man who would defend a black man that was falsely accused to becoming just kind of a little bit of a mess in his later years. But there is one sequel that is more offensive than any other sequel in the world to me. Do you know what it is? Someone guess, which sequels make Andrew Griffiths more frustrated than any other sequel? You know what it is. <laughs> Star Wars. It's a disgrace. Why did they touch these movies? Why did they turn Luke Skywalker into a miserable emo boy that drinks blue milk? This was the guy that redeemed Darth Vader. Oh, if you love them, I love you, but I need you to find a new church. Okay? <laughs> I love you. I can't stand these movies. Here's why I don't like sequels that do what these sequels did, is because they take a really good story, really good characters, and they change them, and they edit them, and they add to them. And friends, Jesus is a little bit like that. He is perfect. He is enough. So why do we add to him? Why do we have to put extra onto Jesus? Why do we have to have Jesus plus? Tim Keller, one of my favorite pastors, he once said that you can't add to Christ without subtracting from Christ. Every time that we think we need a little Jesus plus, we make Jesus into less than he really is. And that's something that Paul is deeply concerned about for the Colossian church. He has held up this vision. The last few weeks we've been talking about this together, haven't we? Memorizing together this passage of scripture that they would have sung together, that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He was this great, perfect, sufficient savior. And yet Paul knows that in Colossae, there is these circulating arguments and debates about whether Jesus really is enough. And he's been hinting at them throughout this whole book. Let me remind you of a couple of sections where he kind of 
hints towards this. He says in Colossians 2 verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So Paul's hinting there's, there's arguments that sound plausible that are circulating and some people are being confused by this in Colossae. It says in verse 8, eight See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Paul's concerned. He loves this church, this beautiful church. He celebrated them, said, I know that you have faith in Christ. I know that you have love for one another, but let me remind you, don't settle for a Jesus plus religion. Don't go to another gospel that preaches that you need Jesus plus something else because the fullness of God is in Christ. The fullness of God is in Christ, so don't be led astray in the dead religion of false spirituality. So we're going to talk about this morning, those two errors that we can fall into, either dead religion or false spirituality. We're going to talk about them by looking at Jesus plus religion, Jesus plus experiences, and Jesus plus nothing. Let's talk about Jesus and religion. One of my favorite things about America is uh, the history of this country. And I know that that sounds strange for a, a British guy who comes from a country that has a history of kings and queens. But if you watched the coronation last week, you know we're pretty embarrassing. The, the things that we do with those kings and queens is just ridiculous. I, I did not want to watch any of it. But American history, even though it's shorter, is full of these eccentric, exciting, inventive characters. One of them I like very much is Ben Franklin. Such an interesting guy, isn't he? He was a politician, he was a scientist, and he was a philosopher. And one of the things that Ben Franklin wrote about in his own autobiography is a philosophy experiment that he got into that he called his moral project. Ben Franklin decided that he was going to create a list of virtues that he would measure himself by for his entire life. He did this when I think he was about 18 years old. And I've got a picture of these, some of these virtues. Temperance, silence, order, resolution, frugality. And he had very specific definitions for these. And every day he would have a checklist. He would go through and he would evaluate himself. And he said, was I, would I, would, did I exercise silence today? Did I listen? Did I exercise justice and sincerity and cleanliness and moderation? How long did you think it took Ben Franklin to realize he wasn't good at his list? Not long at all. And in fact, in his autobiography, he, he talks about how, how much he aspired to this. He longed for this. He wanted to be able to do the list well. He even shared it with others that he was mentoring but he knew the longer he went into it, the worse he was at it. He would put these black marks next to the things that he'd failed out or the areas where he hadn't practiced a virtue. And he became frustrated, wanted to give the whole project up by the end of his life. When we live as though our rules and our guidelines will transform us, we forget that God's means of changing us comes not from a list of virtues, but from his son, the hope of glory. Here's what Paul says, Colossians 2, 16 and 17. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Such a great verse right there, shadow of the things to come. Paul is trying to say, if Jesus is such a big deal, if he really is the creator of everything, the sustainer of everything, if he is the one in whom everything finds its meaning and purpose and center, then 
We don't need rules, we need him. In fact, following rules and regulations in order to impress God and to justify ourselves before God is what I think we should call dead religion. It's dead religion. Dead religion's following rules and performing rituals in order to impress God. And we're all at risk of this. Every single one of us. No matter how long we've called ourselves a believer, what our experience with church or with spirituality has been, every single one of us have a heart that can drift very quickly into dead religion. We start measuring and evaluating God's love for us based on our behavior. Whether or not we've ticked enough of the things on our little checklists. Did I go to church? Did I read my Bible? Did I spend some time in prayer? Did I serve people in some way? Did I give money to the church or to a missionary or to a charity? Do I spend time with the right people whose lives are put together and righteous? I want you to think of the habits and the actions and the behaviors that come to your mind when you think about what impresses God. I'm willing to bet in a room this size, some of the things that appear on that list aren't even biblical. Throw those things out. There's nothing that you could do that would ever impress God. There's nothing that you could do that would make him love you more. Everything has been given to you in Christ. Paul, he uses this line I mentioned a moment ago. He, he says that the, the Colossians were being pressured into following shadows. Shadows. Think about a shadow with me. If you saw a shadow on a wall, what does it indicate? It's a, it's, there's a shape there. You can see that there's something somewhere, but the shadow itself is not the thing. It's just an indicator that there's something else somewhere that's casting that shadow. So I think what Paul's point is, is that the rules and the regulations that we find in the scriptures, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, things like that, they are shadows because they are pointing towards something else. They're indicating that there is something behind them that is far greater. All of God's laws and rituals were about two things, setting the, uh, the Jewish community apart, setting God's people apart from the rest of the world, and then showing them his character, showing that he, that he was morally pure and perfect, that God was good and just and right. And so he gave them laws to, to illustrate that and to help them come and do that with him. But the problem with the law of God, and God himself concedes this several times in scripture, is it was never able to transform people. It was never able to change them. No matter how hard they tried to keep the rules, to be the people that they needed to be, to be set apart, they never lived up to it. Because those things were just shadows. They went the substance. The substance, Paul said, is Christ. He was what was behind him. He was the one casting the shadow. Now that Christ has come, you and I are free from the need of rituals and religion to justify us before God. We've been set free from that. No one knows that better than Paul himself. Paul writes this in Philippians. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul's point is, I was an expert at my list. I had nailed my list. I had discovered 
that I could do all of these different things, that I could keep all of the rules, I could be zealous for God, I could be focused on God, I could fill my head with biblical knowledge, and all of that I counted as loss after I met Jesus. After I beheld this one who had done everything for me, my religious list meant nothing. Another word that we could use here is legalism. Maybe that's a word that you've heard before, legalism. It's the idea that you can do enough, be enough, you work hard enough. But he's, he's just a couple of things that legalism and dead religion lead to. First, it leads to depression and shame. Because all of us know how quickly we fail, not just at God's lists, but our lists. The things that we aspire to and we, we want to measure up to, we can't do it. We fail. And when you are measuring yourself by a list that you can't possibly meet the expectations of, what else is bound to happen but shame and depression and guilt? Feeling like I'm not enough. I can't do it. How could God love me? I can't keep the list. And you get lost in that and you spiral in that. You have to live in a perpetual competition in which you're judging your own performance and saying, well, am I doing as well as the guy next to me? Am I praying as, as much as him? Am I watching the right kind of media? Or am I voting the right way? Am I, you, you just get lost in competition after competition after competition. Am I enough? Am I enough? Am I enough? But it's not just that. It leads to judgmentalism and criticism. Because now, because you can't live up to your list, you almost can't help but heap shame on others that haven't lived up to the list either. And so legalism and dead religion fosters pride and a critical spirit. You become manipulative and controlling. You don't share God's love for people. You're just in love with rules. You become obsessed with them. And we're not saying that behavior is unimportant. We're just saying that that's not at the heart of what God's work is about. God wants to transform hearts. Man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. Pastor Brian has said many times that there's two motivations that human beings can have. Only two. Want to or get to. Sorry, have to or get to. Two motivations. Do you do the things God asks you because you feel you have to? Or do you do them because you get to, because you want to? Because there's joy in meeting him there. See, religion will rob us of gratitude and thankfulness. And our lives won't change out of fear and compulsion. They change out of gratitude. This isn't the only problem in Colossae. It wasn't just Jesus plus religion. It was Jesus plus experience. One of my favorite uh, comedians is a guy called Brian Regan. How many of you have heard of Brian Regan? I told Pastor Eric this morning, I, I really wanted to put this on, but I don't think I would have recovered. I would have just been laughing for the rest. So I'm gonna give you my lame version of Brian Regan. But he has this uh, skit where he's talking about people who like to one-up others. Where you're sitting at a dinner together, and maybe you've heard about this, the man on the moon. He said he would love to be the guy that went to the, the moon on lunar missions because you'd always have the best one-up story. 
right? You'd be sat at a dinner table and someone says, oh yes, my family took a vacation uh, to Thailand this year. It was beautiful. And you'd say, oh, that's nice. I visited the Sea of Tranquility on the moon. Now in Colossae, there's some spiritual one-uppers. There are people who want to have the best story and the best experience that they can use to, to judge other people. This is what Paul says. He says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together, through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. See, the false teachers in Colossae, they didn't just insist on religious rituals and behaviors. They also passed judgment on people based on their spiritual experiences. They insisted that a real spiritual life should include visions and additional kind of spiritual beings like angels. But that's false spirituality. False spirituality is seeking mystical experiences in order to validate God. It's seeking these experiences so you can say, okay, now I know that God lives me because I've had this experience, because I've seen this thing, because I've enjoyed this experience. But we don't need additional spiritual experiences to validate Jesus' sufficiency. Do you realize that if you're in Christ, your whole life is an ongoing miracle? Remember what we already have in Christ, the hope of glory apart from any experience. He dwells with you right now. The spirit is at work in you right now, even at rest. And if you're always chasing the next experience, your faith will be fleeting. There'll always be this inescapable goal to reach. You'll start to assume that Jesus is unfaithful or absent because you haven't had the right experience. You haven't had enough experience. And you know, Jesus in his earthly life would actually rebuke people for requesting experience. There was a one town that he went to and they, the, the people of the town gathered and they said to Jesus, do a miracle for us. We wanna see, we've heard all these stories, we wanna see a healing, we wanna see you do something incredible. And Jesus says, no. Those are signs, they're meant to point to me and here I am right now in the midst of you. Why are you seeking the experience when you have the son? He told many stories like that. Because people in, in Jesus' day were just the same as us. They, they craved these spiritual experiences. And, and I'm one too that craves spiritual experiences. But I've always got to come back to the fact that God has given me the purest experience in the opportunity to know his son. To be loved by his son. To be transformed by his son. All of us should say to God, you're enough for me. You are enough for me. Not what you can do, not what you can provide, not the greatest thrill or experience, but you, your presence, your promises, your word, your love, your work, all of that is enough. And just like dead religion, false spirituality misses the message of the gospel. It misses what makes God good news. And so it does damage to our relationship to God and to others. We feel like our faith is invalid if we're not having enough experiences. We live in fear and doubt, wondering if God, is he really working me? Does he really love me? Does he really see me? Because I pray and I don't see a response. Because I pray and I don't hear. I just, does he really see me? Does he really love me? And then we pass that doubt on to others. Just like these teachers were doing in Colossae, we unintentionally, sometimes intentionally, judge other people based on their experiences. 
might call it spiritual virtue signaling. Well, I've had visions and I've had dreams and I've experienced this and I've seen this and I've been around miracles. And, and so we assume that's what validates God's love for us. And we, so we assume God must love me because I've had these experiences and he mustn't love these people because they haven't. Maybe you've had it this way. You, you obviously don't have enough faith if this prayer hasn't been answered. You mustn't have enough holiness in you if, if this experience hasn't happened for you. And we heap guilt and shame on other people and they begin to doubt God's love for them because we've convinced them that they need an experience instead of a savior. That's not gospel. That's not good news. We always think with this mentality, the grass is greener somewhere else. We lose our grip on gratitude when we're looking for the next big experience. There's an example of this recently, and I hesitate to use this example because there was a lot of beauty about it, but some of you have heard that in the last year there was a revival in Asbury, and hundreds, even thousands of people gathered together to repent of their sin, to cry out to God, healings were happening, all kinds of miraculous, incredible things, but what happened is that that beautiful experience became a measurement stick for people in other places in the country to say, if we were really chasing Jesus, that would be happening here. We'd be having that experience. And what's tragic about that is something that beautiful that God was doing, in our broken hearts, we twisted it into something that we could weaponize and use to evaluate ourselves and other people. We shouldn't be doing that. Jesus is the measuring stick, and what he has said is that he loves us and that he's given himself for us, that he is enough. So if you're in this place this morning and you have felt, maybe I'm not having enough experiences, and you doubt because of that God's presence and love with you, I just want to remind you from God's word, he is present with you. There are many times throughout scripture in which the most faithful and loving people went through seasons where they felt like they weren't encountering much of God in their daily life. And yet God was there with them, present with them. Even when they wept and cried out to him, he met them. Even Jesus himself, remember on the cross, you remember when he cried out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can't feel you, I'm not experiencing you right now. But Christ said that so that we could be reminded he is present. That moment on that cross was proof that he is present with us. What we need to do is abide in him. Paul says that they've become disconnected from the head. These people who chase experiences have forgotten the head, Jesus, who's given himself for them. We need to abide in him. He will validate himself. And so my encouragement to you is if you are in a dry spell and you're looking to experience God, the best thing that you can do is to go abide in his word. Open this up. Be consistent with it. Be present in it. Every morning, read as much as you can, even if it's just little bits, and say, God, speak to me. Get together with others in the church, brothers and sisters in Christ who can walk beside you and encourage you and comfort you and care for you. Pray to the Lord. Cry out. Read the Psalms. There's so many Psalms there that you can find one for wherever you're at. If you're feeling alone, if you're feeling forgotten, if you're feeling joyful, there's something there for you to cry out to God with. Paul's point, and the whole point of the whole scriptures really is to say that you need Jesus plus nothing. 
Jesus plus nothing. The root of both the problems of dead religion and false spirituality is that Jesus is not enough. But the cry of the gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals everything that you will ever need. Paul says, Colossians 2, 20 through 23, if you with Christ died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. He's referencing there some of the things that the false teachers would have said to Colossae. Don't touch this, don't taste this, stay away from these foods because they're ungodly, they're unrighteous. But that's according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But, and this is the most important part for us today, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul says these religious behaviors and this false spirituality will not change your life. It will be of no advantage to you in dealing with the things that cause you the most pain and struggle. You don't need a new checklist. You don't need a new experience. You need Jesus. You don't need behavior modification. What you need is a new nature. You need to be reborn. Because the problem for all of us isn't just that we've gone off and that we, we need to get some new rules to get us back in place. It's that spiritually we have died and we need new life. Can you imagine if I got myself a nice list of religious things and put it on a dead pass and said, there you go, buddy, I'll help you out. A checklist is of no use to a dead person. What they need is the living God to breathe new life in them and raise them. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, he says, you need to be born again. You need to be remade, Nicodemus. That's what you need is not religious rules. It's you need new life. Legalism and mysticism and asceticism and all these other philosophies, they can't lead to life. He's, he's how I might put it, and Pastor Brian said this again this week. He said, if we think that Christianity is about trying harder and doing more, we've missed the whole point of it. Christianity is about resting in the finished work of Christ. We gather every Sunday, not to learn about the things that we need to do, but to be reminded of the things that have been done in Christ. Paul, you got really fired up by this. Says in his letter to the Galatians, says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and attending to a different gospel. Church in Galatia was struggling with some of the same things. They were getting lost in, in doing all the right things. And he said, I'm astonished. Why would you do that? He says in verse 10, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul says, why would you trade the message of Jesus plus nothing for Jesus plus religion or Jesus plus experience? Why would you trade a savior for a rule book? He says, you're seeking the approval of man, which is, is useless to you. Why do you want to impress people? Don't you want the God of heaven to come and dwell with you and, and meet with you and transform you? Jesus has given you God's approval. Why chase it? Why exhaust yourself trying to earn it? You ever, um, you ever been looking around your house for an object that you need for a task or, or whatever and you, you can't find it and so you think, I'm gonna go to the store and buy a new one? You go get it and then you get home and what happens when you get home? You find it was already there the whole time. 
Sometimes we live out our faith like that. We need to go buy something else. We, we, can't, you know, we can't find it. It's there. It's in Jesus. You already have it. Anything that you could need, it's already in him. Don't go waste your money. Because friends, you won't be able to buy anything that compares to him. You won't be able to earn anything that compares to him. Are you seeking approval and validation or are you resting in his work for you? There's another easy way to diagnose dead religion and false spirituality. Dead religion and false spirituality all focus on you. True religion focuses on Christ. Listen to the gospel that Paul preached to the Ephesians. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He's that phrase again, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. What good news. By grace we have been saved. Think about some of the words that Paul uses in just in that short paragraph. Great love, grace, seated you, raised you, immeasurable riches of kindness. Isn't that what we're searching for? More than some list of things that we have to get done? Aren't we searching for the immeasurable riches of his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus? Doesn't that bring us rest? Your Christian faith, friends, is about acknowledging two things. Your lack of ability to earn God's love and your lack of need to earn God's love. You cannot earn it. You don't need to earn it. It's been given to you in his son. Any idea that diminishes Jesus and elevates you is dead religion. Put it aside. What God is telling us is you come to the relationship with zero. You come to the relationship with zero. And for some of us, that's hard because if we know we have zero, that's great news. But if we think we have something, oh gosh, is that hard. But what about this, God? But what about this stuff that I've done and all this that I've achieved and all this? Get rid of it. Count it as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Receive him. This is really all about one thing for us, rest. It's about rest. It's about God putting an end to our exhaustion by being in himself what we could never be. It's about handing control to Jesus, trusting that his work on our behalf is is enough to do as Colossians tells us, hold all things together. A lot of you guys know I struggle with anxiety. And what anxiety is, I've been told by many smarter people than me, is this compulsion to gain control over the details of your life. What if this happens? What if this happens? What if this happens? And, and your heart in anxiety says, I've got I've to do enough. I've got to be enough. I've got to try and predict what could go wrong and get a handle on it. I've got to foresee all the things that could happen and prevent them. And friends, that's so exhausting. 
And though that's particular in my life, I think every human that's ever lived has lived with a certain level of anxiety, spiritual anxiety, wondering whether they're enough, could be enough, could do enough, could gain control. The best thing that God's ever done for me is wrench control from my hands. The most loving, kind thing he could ever do is say, son, let me do what you cannot do. And that is the call of the gospel over every one of us in this room this morning. Let God do what you cannot do. What you do not need to do because of Jesus. God desires for you to know that the fullness of God is found in his son. And he's made himself available to you through faith. All you need to do this morning to receive this grace is to say, Father, let me know your son and the riches that is in him. He is enough. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your son is enough. He is enough. And Father, forgive us when we have turned to another gospel that convinces that we can be enough or do enough or we can meet a checklist or we can encounter an experience to validate your love for us. God, I thank you that your love for us was loud and clear in the cross. And when we behold your son and the gift that he's given us, we know we are loved, we are sought, and we are justified. May we put our faith in Jesus Christ alone, for he is enough. Amen. Thank you so much for worshiping with us this morning. I hope it's been a blessing to you. I hope it's encouraged you of the good news that Jesus is enough for you. Is there any way we can pray for you, encourage you? Please come forward. We have prayer teams. We have a prayer room in the back. We'd love to pray with you. Don't want you to leave this morning. If there's any way that we can serve you and encourage you, we don't just want to be a place where you can hear me, Gab. We want this to be a place where you can, as a family, know that God is present and wants to meet you. Just a, a reminder about something special that's coming up next week. You'll see this on your bulletin. Would love for as many of you as able to join as you can. Uh, we have a guest called Alex who's joining us from Operation Christmas Child from Samaritan's Pass. He's going to share his story of how generosity has impacted his life. Would love for you to join us after the surface next week. But for today, let me offer this benediction. May we go in the name of the one who is enough for us, whose life has justified us, whose grace has validated us. May we go in the name of the one who can do everything for us. It's in Jesus' name that we go. Amen.